Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 9. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, as I said last week, when you preach through a series or through a book in a series, you preach what comes next. And that means you uh, don't have a choice. And so here we are this morning, and we are now to another passage regarding um, uh, the sexual relationships that ought to exist and those that should not. When we think of the word holy, uh, that word uh, holy, when we think of it, uh, sometimes we have a tendency to think, well, if you're holy, you're prudish, you have no fun. You kind of walk around uh, with, uh, with uh, a frown on your face, and it, it is never a, um, a good time to be had. And so if you think of that as holy, then you look at that word, and you add to it uh, this next word, and you would say, oh, I don't think those two words ever would go together. Uh, holy sex. How is it that these two words will be joined together in a sermon title? So let me define holiness for a moment because God is all about it. Even in the New Testament, he is all about holiness. And holy means to be set apart. To be holy is to be set apart. It is to be uh, distinct and unique. And uh, to be holy is to be set apart by God. Um, Pretty simply, that's what it means. It means that we as Christians are to be different than the world around us. And so if you're a high school kid and you tell all the jokes that all the other high school kids do and, and you uh, uh, curse like all the other high school kids do, then you're not living a holy life. That's what holy means. So it means that we as believers are going to be different. We're going to live differently. People will look at us and see a difference between us and the world. And so here we are to this passage, and in this passage, uh, Paul uh, answers uh, either a question they have or it's another slogan that has arisen in Corinth. And here it is. The slogan is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It is from this slogan that Paul gives us three attributes of a holy or Christian view of sexuality, and here they are. Uh, the first attribute is that sex is sanctifying. Sex is sanctifying. Sex uh, sets us apart in the marriage relationship in a significant way. The pendulum evidently is swung, and because of the sexual immorality of chapter 5, 
of uh, 1 Corinthians that is dealt with there. Because there are a thousand prostitutes running around the city streets, then word has gotten into the church at Corinth, well, there shouldn't be any sex anywhere, anytime, even in marriage. If you're really going to be holy, then the way you're going to be holy is you don't have to have sex anytime, anywhere, even in the context of marriage. And Paul says that isn't the case. Verse 2, he says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. That word have here is a sexual term. And what Paul is saying is because of the temptation, he says, to sexual temptation, because of that possibility, in the context of marriage, husbands and wives ought to engage in sexual relationships. Uh, People say that Paul degrades the beauty of marriage by reducing marriage between a husband and wife to sex with each other. And he degrades marriage. Paul isn't saying, please hear me, get married so you can have sex. That's not what he's saying. Every married couple when in the room would say marriage is way too hard for that to be the only reward. So Paul isn't saying that. What he is saying is have sex so that you can stay married. He is saying that. He is saying that sex functions as a sanctifying part of the marriage relationship. As a matter of fact, in verse 5, he says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you, Because of your lack of self-control. In verse 5, what does he do? He introduces Satan to the equation. Paul doesn't do that often. And so when he does, we need to pay attention. What might Satan have to say about this? Well, uh, Satan looks for opportune times. He is a strategist. He is a schemer. He tries to find an opportune time to destroy you. Either as a single person or as a married person, he will look for that. And when he finds it, he will go for it. And what Paul says here is that when you, in your marriage, do not practice the act of sex with one another as husband and wife, you give Satan such an opportune time that gives him a window. It it nudges the door open to sexual temptation within the marriage relationship. And when that door is nudged open, Satan will kick it down every single time should he get the chance. And Paul says, don't let him do that. You may recall the temptation of Jesus when Jesus had been tempted by Satan and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. And when Satan had tempted Jesus, Luke 4.13 says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he left him, Jesus, until what? An opportune time. Satan looks for that. 
Lest you think you can toy with him, play with him, somehow escape his desire to wreck your life, you cannot. He's after you if you belong to Christ. He wants you. He wants to destroy you. To destroy you is a score against Christ. And so he wants to come after you to do that. I'm not just standing up here as a preacher who is saying preacher things. For 20 years, I've been privileged to serve God in ministry and privileged to sit with people in my office and in my home who have gone through all kinds of things in their lives. As I have done so, I have seen Satan time and again look for the opportunity to strike, and he does, and he scores. In the United States, mountain lions are the, uh, the animal regarded as the number one predator of humans. What they like to do is interesting. They can eat, devour somebody six to seven times, or some animal six to seven times their size. How they do it is this. They will prowl, and as they prowl, they want that person's back to them. And so a mountain lion, if he's coming after you, wants your back. And he wants the top two or three vertebrae of whoever or whatever his prey is because that controls the breathing, the oxygen supply. And he'll snap and go for that vertebrae. And once he has done that, you're history. And he has you. And so it is that Craig Childs, who studies animals, was studying mountain lions. Why you would do that, I don't know, but he was. He was following a mountain lion, uh, or looking for mountain lions, and he went to a stream where he was told that they drink water, and sure enough, they do. And he saw one drinking water from a pond at the end of that stream. He said, then the mountain lion went into some junipers nearby and disappeared. And he said, so I went down to take pictures of the the uh, feet, uh, the footprints of the mountain lion to gather some data, some information. When I looked to my left and saw two eyes coming out of the junipers, sure enough, the mountain lion hadn't left. He said, I thought surely he would run. But rather than running, that mountain lion stepped out of the junipers and eyed me, stared at me 30 feet away. So since he studies them, thankfully he knows what to do. He said, I took my knife out and had it ready, and I knew not to run. Because if I turned to run, I would have a mountain lion on me quicker than I ever could escape him, and I would be dead. Either from my spine being bitten in two, without breaking a bone in my body, that mountain lion would do that. He said, so I would feel the weight of it on my body. He said, as a matter of fact, a woman was attacked by a mountain lion. She escaped the attack going down the road only for a mountain lion to cut her off, to sniff her out and cut her off miles down the road, attack her from behind and kill her. So what did he do? He said, I stood there and the mountain lion then moved to my right. And when it moved to my right, he said, I moved with it. 
eyes locked in on his eyes, knife drawn. He said, then the mountain lion moved in. Are you ready for this? To within 10 feet of me. All right, so that's the point at which I would just be dead already from a heart attack or something. He said, the mountain lion moved moved to within 10 feet of me, and as it did, it would go then to my left, and I would turn to the left, staring at the mountain lion with a knife in hand. Then it would cut to my right, and he said, I would go to my right, and then to my left, and I would go to my left. He said, back and forth, back and forth, that went, that mountain lion trying to get behind me. I knew what he was trying to do until he finally gave up and left. Scripture says Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he will go after you. He will try to find you with your back turned against God and exposed to him. And when he does, he'll go for the kill. Paul said one of the reasons for a healthy sex life in your marriage is to avoid that. Sex in the context of marriage is sanctifying. It is a means of the grace of God. Now, as I talk, I understand that in a sermon, I can only speak really in generalities. That there are situations in this room where there's been abuse and, and that completely changes and colors everything. That there are situations where there's been marital, recent marital unfaithfulness and you must navigate through that. Honestly, and openly. What I'm talking about is where you sit here today and you are a married couple and you look at the frequency of sex in your marriage and as that number diminishes, temptation increases. That's what Paul is saying. It is a thermometer. Um, the first attribute of holy sex is that sex is sanctifying. The second is that sex is mutual submission. Uh, Paul says the husband should give his wife to his wife her conjugal, her sexual rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. What does he say? When you get married, your body becomes the property of your wife. And wife, your body becomes the property of your husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. As God has designed sex for marriage, the husband isn't the aggressor, nor is the wife. There is mutual submission here. Both are mutually submissive to one another. And so we'll deal with two issues that typically emerge here. 
One could be men with age, a very practical issue where there are practical problems. What should you do? Deal with them. Be honest and open about them. Don't be proud. Deal with them. Whatever it takes, medicine can handle that, so deal with it. And then the second issue that most often surfaces is level of desire. It will honestly different differ from one mate to another. Not necessarily male to female or female to male. It will just honestly differ. You must deal with that. Uh, sex is mutual submission. It is not one person being aggressive. If you've watched the news this week, all the NFL stuff that's swirling, and you read with with disgust where an NFL player head-butted his girlfriend or wife because she refused his desire for sex. Paul spoke into a culture where that was accepted and said, that's not Christian. In a godly marriage, you will mutually submit to one another in this. It will be his desire and her desire. That's what godly relations look like. Paul says, do not deprive one another in verse 5. It means to take away from the other what rightfully belongs to him or what rightfully belongs to her. Let me speak to this for a moment. All right? This can happen on both sides but it happens more on the woman's side. Women. Paul is speaking in the context of a thousand prostitutes roaming the streets of Corinth. Sex abounds. Temptation is prolific. And what he says is in the context of marriage, don't deprive your husband. Why? There are a thousand opportunities for him. Husbands, don't deprive your wives. There were scores of opportunities of men who could take advantage of her. Now, the problem, as it appears mostly today, is if there's an argument or a disagreement, the woman in the relationship will use her body as a bargaining tool until you see things my way. Then we just won't have sex, she'll say. Now, I've already said there are situations where you have to Take a break, and you have to work through things. But when women do that, you practice a form of marital prostitution in a sense. You say, my body is valuable because it gets me what I want. And I'll use it in that way. Men and women can do this. You are worth far more than that, Paul says. Your body isn't to be degraded to be used in that way at all. 
mutually submit to one another. Paul says sex is mutual submission. It is the husband gladly submitting to the wife and the wife gladly submitting to the husband in the act of sex within marriage. Third, he says singleness and marriage are a gift. What does he say? He says in verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I'll say this. So he's saying, all right, this isn't like straight from the mouth of God. I'm just going to say my opinion here. I wish that all were as I myself am. Well, how is he? Uh, Verse 8 answers that question. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul is single. But back to verse 7, he says, I wish that all were I as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of the one kind and one of another. This word gift is key. It comes from the Greek word charis, which is where we get our word grace. The word itself is the word charisma, or we might say charisma in English, and it means a gracious gift of God. What is Paul saying? Singleness is a gracious gift of God. Marriage is a gracious gift of God. Both are gifts from God. So what does he mean? If you're If you're single, he says, my advice would be to you to stay single. Today we might say it is better to want something you don't have than to have something you don't want, right? All right, if you're single, don't get married just because you want to get married. Marriage is way too challenging just to do it because it's a nice option. No, you should do it because you desire to be with this woman. You desire to be with this man. God has brought the two of you together, and you desire them. So he says, I I wish that all were as I I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. You say, Jerry, well, how do I know if my singleness is a gift? Here's how I think you can tell. If you are a single person, And when you think of marriage, you think, "Uh, I could take it or leave it. You have a gift from God to stay single. God's given that to you. Celebrate it. Enjoy your singleness. Serve God in your singleness. If you are single and you're walking with God and all you can think about is being married, guess what? You don't have the gift of singleness. Don't deny it. One day, most likely, you'll be married. So you live in light of that. You just can't imagine. I I spent some time with a single man yesterday from our church, and he said to me, uh, he's a young uh, professional, and he said, I just can't wait to be married. I just can't wait to, to be a dad. I just can't wait. Well, guess what? He needs to be married one day. God's given him the gift of marriage. All right, so how do we practice that? If you are here sitting beside your husband or your wife, here's what you get to do right now. Look at him or look at her and say, you are God's gift to me. All right, just do it right now. 
All right, so for some of you, that was a bit awkward. All right, because you didn't talk so kind this morning as you were getting ready to get to this place. You had screaming kids, dirty diapers, uh, kids who wouldn't get up on time, who wouldn't do what they needed to do, and you certainly didn't think you were each other's gift to anybody, right? But you are. If marriage is a gift, and it is a charisma, it is a gift. Paul says marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. If marriage is a gift, then your wife or your husband is God's gift to you. And I want to touch on something for a moment that I didn't even touch on in the early service, so maybe we'll have to podcast both these because they're kind of really different. But uh, let me touch on this. Uh, Your person, uh, please abandon the idea, all the singles in the room, that you've got to find your soulmate. All right, just lose that. That's a crazy idea out of the pits of hell. All right, that somewhere out there, you know, somewhere. No, I'm just kidding. All right, that somewhere out there is your soulmate. She is everything you've ever longed for, and one day you're going to meet her, and it's going to be like magnetic energy, and you will see her, and when you do, like you're just drawn in, and she's drawn to you. Listen, uh, uh, Gary Chapman in his work, The Love Languages, calls that the tingles. They, they uh, literally have been researched. They last 18 months and they're over. Uh, I, I'll tell you what will get rid of those. Bad breath, bad hair in the morning. All right, so when you get married and you wake up and his breath is putrid, you know, and the three pieces of hair he has are going that way, That doesn't work anymore. All right, not many of us get better looking with age. Not many of us do, right? We just get fatter and uh, shorter. You get shorter the older you get and fatter and uh, have, I have less hair, you know, where I want to have hair and more hair where I don't want to have hair. It's just life. You're not going to find your soulmate. That's a lie from the pits of hell. And so what do you do? You look and you look and she has to meet this criteria and he has to be this. You have to check this off and that off and you find her and guess what? She's crazy disappointed because you thought she was your soulmate. And so you're going to divorce her because she didn't meet the criteria, didn't make the list. I said this last week you definitely aren't going to find your soulmate in high school. All right, so I just want to say that again. If you're in high school and your Facebook uh, status is single, we all say, duh. Of course you're single. You shouldn't even use that language. You're a high school kid. You're not single or in a relationship. You're a high schooler. Your status should say young and stupid. No, I'm just kidding. Then it just should say Young, not single, and not stupid. I love kids. I love teenagers. Absolutely love teenagers. You're not stupid. So I know I'll get an email for that. I'll answer it. All right, so, so what am I saying here? Singleness and marriage are a gift. Please hear me. I read this quote this week. I want to read it just like I read it. Singleness is not a disease for which the only cure is marriage. Amen? Singleness is not a disease for which the only cure is marriage. It isn't. All right. So there's a single person in the room that I I feel total freedom 
to say this, and she won't mind. God uses her tremendously. I think she views her singleness as a gift. She's sitting to my left. It's Diane Brooks, and she is a chaplain for hospice. And if you are dealing with loss, and Diane steps into the room, the Holy Spirit just walks around in with her. And God uses her tremendously. And some of you have been in that room when she stepped into the room. And God has used her tremendously. And I've watched her head just like nod off as I'm talking today. Amen, amen, amen. God has just blessed her as a single woman to be used mightily by him. And we say, good job, Diane, right? Amen. And there are others of you. Some of you are single again. Maybe it was the divorce you never, ever wanted. And you say, Jerry, I don't ever want to be married again. That's okay. Maybe your husband or wife died. And in your widow, as he talks, your widowhood, your widower, you don't want to be married again. There's no desire. That's okay. No stigma. Nothing. No. Not ever. That's what Paul is saying here. What a remarkable gift. But he says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. All right, herein lies the challenge. In 1950, the average age to marry was 23. So in 1950, the average age, if you were going to get married, you would be 20, uh, I'm sorry, 22 years old. In 2010, 27. Here's the challenge, please hear me. God clearly says sex is to be reserved for marriage. In our culture, when marriage occurs now so much later, Guess what you have to do, singles? Walk with God. Not just till you're 22 now and stay sexually pure, but till you're 27, perhaps. 30. 35. Whatever the age may be. We're in a culture where marriage occurs later. It means the church has to be real about the subject. And if we're going to encourage singles to love God, then we have to know that you as singles deal with significant temptation now, on the average, five years longer than your parents did. And some of you will move through your sexual prime without ever having experienced sex. That's hard. But it is God's plan. You say, but oh, Jerry, that's so old-fashioned. God has reasons. We don't have time for all of those today. Perhaps you've read some of Malcolm Muggeridge's work. Muggeridge was a reporter, a writer, 
who early in his life, as a matter of fact, until late in his life, did not come to Christ. He was an agnostic at best, an atheist at worst. When he graduated from Cambridge, not a small feat, he then went to India to teach English. He was not a Christian at this time, but he wrote his father telling his dad what had happened. He said he was walking along the river when he saw the silhouette of a woman bathing on the other side of the river. Muggeridge said what he did next surprised him. He says, it surprised me that in me existed this lustful desire so great that I abandoned all sense of responsibility and jumped into the river to begin swimming to the other side to get to her, only to discover when I got close that she was an old, wrinkled, toothless leper. He said, you might expect the fact that she was a leper to be what was most shocking to me But to his dad, he said, what was most shocking to me was this overwhelming sinful nature that I had. Later he wrote, and I quote, if only I could paint, I'd make a wonderful picture of a passionate boy running after that and call it the lust of the flesh. That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about burning with passion. Say, Jerry, what should I do? I want to speak to, first, all the singles in the room this morning, meaning college and up not high school. All those high school kids, you've got to do these things too. How are you going to stay pure? How are you going to do this? Let me give you three. This is not an exhaustive list, but through my years of counseling. Number one, accountability. You got to have somebody who speaks the truth to you in love. Now, if you're in middle school, initially that's your parents. Sometimes that continues and sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't, find some godly person. Accountability. Number two, boundaries. Boundaries. Healthy fences, not walls, but healthy fences that you put around you to keep opportunity out. Doesn't ignore your sexual drive. That begins in middle school. It doesn't ignore that. It doesn't ignore your sexual passion. It acknowledges it, but boundaries. I remember years ago when I did youth ministry, this young couple, they were uh, probably college age, coming to me and 
they didn't come to the church where I work. They just came by to see me, and they said, we got a problem. And what is it? And they said, we're having sex. That's a problem. And we're having it often. That's a problem. And I said, well, well, when is it happening? They said, well, we go out on a date, and then we come home and go to her house and go down to her bedroom. Well, duh. If you'll just quit, I said, does it happen there every time? Yeah, then don't go to her bedroom anymore. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. That's just called a boundary. But then the third thing that Paul touches on here is motivation. What does he mean by motivation? Here's what he means. I read this example this week. This guy said he was given a conference. He was sharing and talking about sexual purity. And this guy said, well, I I just can't. My sex drive is too strong. I know you say it, but it's going to happen eventually. As a single person, it's going to happen. And so the guy giving the conference said, okay, let's say the next time you're with your girlfriend in that situation, if I offer you $1,000 not to have sex with her. Will you do it? He said, no way. Why? This kid could use 1000 bucks. And the speaker said, do you understand what has just happened? One desire has been replaced by a greater desire. Your desire to have sex with your girlfriend really does have a price on it. It's $1,000. And if I offer 1000 bucks, guess what you won't do? What does this mean for you as a young, single Christian? Can your, this is what Dave was speaking to before he led worship today, can your desire for Christ be greater than your desire for your boyfriend or your girlfriend or the random boy or girl? Is it? And then to the married, if not having sex for the single person is an indication, one of those indications of of in in a very hard and difficult way walking with God, having sex, Paul says, in your marriage is an indication of you as a husband and wife walking with God. Some of you need to have a difficult and awkward conversation today. Maybe it's over lunch. Maybe it's at dinner Maybe it's in the privacy of your bedroom, but you need to sit and say, okay, we do have a problem, and it's exposing our marriage to the enemy. And we got to fix that. And whatever it takes to fix that, do it. I was talking to Dave about how to end the service, and he and I both agreed that it would be most awkward to give an invitation. So we're not. 
I'm going to pray for you and we're going to leave. Before I do, could I say something to you? As awkward as it has been for you to sit and listen to this, it has been many more times awkward than that for me to preach it. Let's pray. Father, your word speaks to the very real and realities of our lives.